Well, good morning to you. If you have your New Testaments with you, be opening up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we won't be there immediately, but we'll be there in just a few moments. Acts chapter 2. Appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you this morning. Always good to be back in East Texas. We love San Antonio. We love the people there, but East Texas is its own kind of special, and it's certainly nice to be here. Always good to be with Leon and Alma. Good to be with Drew. Good to see so many of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. This morning we are going to talk a little bit about baptism and perhaps approach this topic in a bit of a a different way. Hopefully I can explain why we'll take the approach that we're going to take, the significance behind it. The goal of this morning's study is, is really just to examine baptism in the very simple way that it is presented to us in the New Testament. Sometimes biblical topics, biblical concepts can be made a lot more difficult than what they need to be. And what we want to do this morning is to try to go back to the text of the New Testament and to see in its clearness and its simplicity what God would tell us in His Word about baptism. I want to build just a little bit off of what we talked about this morning in our Bible class hour from the 119th Psalm. We noted in our study that God has given us His Word for our good. Following that, we notice that we have the ability to read and to understand God's Word. Whether we are young or old, whether we are weak or strong, whether we are mature in the faith or whether we are new in the faith, that we have the capability, we have the opportunity to understand God's Word and to understand it just exactly as He intends it for us. And then we ended by noting that God expects us to obey His Word, that what He tells us in His Word to do and to avoid, He expects us to do and to avoid. Now with with that all being said, I had a conversation in my office at the church building a few weeks ago. There are several men who have been visiting with us at University Oaks who are kind of dissatisfied uh, with the churches that they are currently in. There's not a lot of Bible teaching going on. Uh, As we see the slow and steady drumbeat that that moves further and further from the biblical pattern, people are starting to see that more and more. Uh, The churches where these men were were slowly starting to adopt instrumental music and worship services, were slowly starting uh, to incorporate women in leadership positions, and were slowly uh, starting to soften their stance on teachings such as homosexuality. These men finally looked around, And said, you know, who I am and what I believe and what this church used to stand for is not what this church stands for now. And so they left and started traveling around the the northern San Antonio area trying to find a church that fit what they saw the biblical pattern was. And they happened to stop in with us and came back and came back and continued to study. One of those men came into my office a few weeks back. 
He was concerned about some of the teaching that he had heard, not specifically at University Oaks, but in his background, uh, concerning baptism. And particularly, our conversation uh, revolved around whether or not, or what, more precisely, a person must understand as they are being baptized. Does one have to understand that it is for the remission of sins? Does one have to understand that they are being baptized into Christ? Does one have to understand that baptism is not done to enter the church specifically, but that we are added to the church through baptism, not the local church, but the universal church. He had a lot of questions. And so we sat and we began to go through. And at one point there was a statement made that sometimes we make things more difficult than what it needs to be. I suppose that's true. I've seen several examples of that in my own personal life. And I could see perhaps, and maybe you could too, where some teaching that is done by some on biblical topics could definitely make some biblical topics a whole lot more difficult than what they need to be. And I hope we recognize God's Word doesn't have to be difficult. Oftentimes it's not the fact that God's Word is difficult. Oftentimes, would you agree that it's the fact that we're bringing baggage to the table sometimes? That we've got things in our past that makes us accepting God's Word a little bit more challenging? Sometimes it's the fact that we've got to unlearn some things before we learn some new things, right? If this is what I have always known and now you're presenting to me something completely different, I've got to reckon between those two sides, don't I? And I have to figure out, okay, if this is the truth, this means I've got to turn away from this. Is that something I'm willing to do? In the course of our study, which was a good one, This question was posed, and this is the course of study I want us to take this morning. The question was posed, can a person pick up the Bible and knowing nothing else, can they understand God's will regarding baptism? Can Joe somebody out here, who's never been involved in the church, never heard a sermon, can he pick up his New Testament? Can he read through it and can he understand accurately what God wants him to do, for example, concerning baptism? I thought that was a good question. I I think sometimes these situations that we contrive might be uh, a little bit inauthentic. Think, I think we'll demonstrate that here in just a moment, but I think it's a good question. Can you and I just pick up God's Word, read it, and understand what God's will is on a matter? Let's think about that concerning baptism. We're not going to go through all the New Testament passages on baptism. We're going to limit ourselves this morning to the Gospels and Acts, all right, just for the sake of time. But as we go through our New Testaments, let's see just from a simple reading... What does God in His Word tell us about baptism? Start with me. I know I had you turn over to Acts 2 and we'll be there in just a moment. But let's start in Matthew chapter 3. Let's start in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, we have John the baptizer talking about the baptism that he administered. 
He said, as for me, I baptize you in water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mighty. I just read that verse, didn't I? I don't know why I'm reading it again. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered him and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. (coughs) Pardon me. After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. (laughs) If we're just going over this text by means of a simple reading, number one, what we see is that John's baptism was not the final word. John said, here is my baptism, but there is someone coming after me who is greater than me, and he's going to have more to say about this. So whatever we walk away from Matthew 3 with, we walk away with the understanding that this character, John the Baptist, was baptizing people, but that there would be more to this story to come. And then we get this story in verse 13 of Jesus being baptized. Jesus coming to John at the Jordan River to be baptized by him. You remember when I said sometimes these situations that we contrive can be a bit inauthentic? In the course of our conversation in in the office, this gentleman said to me, well, you know, if we're just trying to read the New Testament, we're just trying to start at the beginning and go through it, isn't it enough just to say, I want to be baptized so I can be like Jesus? I mean, I, I think... All of us want to be like Jesus, don't we? That would be a good thing to be like Jesus. Let me ask you a question. In this scenario that has been constructed, and this is the scenario I was having to deal with in that Bible study, why do you need to follow Jesus? You said because Jesus is the Son of God. Because Jesus is our example. Because Jesus is our high priest. Uh, Because Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found within his mouth. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now I would agree with all of that. But we're in Matthew chapter 3. Have we gotten to any of that yet? If we are just reading through the New Testament, and I want to be baptized because I can be like Jesus, because I want to be like Jesus, when you come to Matthew chapter 3, do you want to be like Jesus yet? I mean, maybe you do, but why? Do we know that Jesus is the Son of God yet? Do we know that Jesus is sinless yet? See, there's a bit of a challenge with that whole scenario that was set up. Now, someone says, I want to be baptized to be like Jesus. My question was, why do you want to be like Jesus? 
And the point in that question is not to doubt that we do need to be like Jesus. But the point is this, if we are bounding ourselves as, as per the conversation in my office to a person just sitting down and reading through the New Testament without any greater context, we don't yet know in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus is worthy of us following him. We've just literally been introduced to him. So we walk away from Matthew 3 simply with this. John was baptizing, but there's something greater on the way. And we need to be looking for that. And that John identifies Jesus as being greater than him. But there's more to this story to come. Jump ahead to the end of this story chronologically. Matthew chapter, or rather Mark chapter 16. That Matthew is going to detail for us in Matthew 28. But we'll look at Mark 16, the story of the Great Commission. Maybe you're familiar with this. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus speaking to his apostles after he has died, after he has been raised from the dead, after he has been demonstrated to be the Son of God, after he has shed his blood on Calvary for the forgiveness of sins, after he has taught, after he has been seen, after we know now that we need to take up our cross and follow after Him, after all of that, Jesus comes to His apostles and He says what to them? Mark 16 and verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Number one, when we're walking away from this passage, we see that Jesus, the risen Son of God, tells us that baptism is significant, doesn't he? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And, and just at this point, someone might want to quibble, well, he doesn't say it in this terminology. He says belief is the basis for condemnation or disbelief is the basis for... Okay. But just at this point, can, can we simply agree that Jesus says baptism is significant? And we can talk more about its significance as we move on through our study, but let's understand Jesus says baptism is significant. And then along with that, baptism is joined to both belief and salvation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. So baptism plays some role. It is linked together with both the concepts of salvation and belief. Now there's more to be revealed and there's more that we need to study, but as, as we're just doing the simple reading, right? Simple reading, we're not trying to make things more difficult than they need to be. We're just looking at these passages in the context in which we find them. Here is the risen Son of God who says baptism is significant and He's going to link together the ideas of salvation and belief with baptism. That's what a simple reading of the text would tell us. Come over to Acts chapter 2 now. Acts chapter 2. And when we come over here to Acts chapter 2, what we're going to see here are people who are in the same situation as us. Uh, by that I, I don't mean in Jerusalem. By that I don't mean... Uh, 
with a Jewish ethnicity. But here's what I mean when I say people like us. Even what we read in Mark 16 and Matthew 28. All of that is is occurring in a bit of a different time frame. What What we read in Matthew chapter 3 earlier with John's baptism, it's before the cross, isn't it? Before the cross, before the resurrection, before Jesus' ascension into heaven. Mark 16 and Matthew 28 are right there in the window of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven. But here we come into Acts chapter 2. And all that's been prophesied about the Messiah has taken place. He has died. He has been raised, and he has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. There's nothing more that we're waiting for the Messiah to do at this point. He has come, he has shed his blood, he's raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. From a chronological standpoint, from a biblical timeline standpoint, These people are in the same place as you and me. And what is said to these people? Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter calls their attention where? Backwards. Just like you and I, to find forgiveness to find grace, to find mercy, our eyes go back to the cross. Peter is taking the eyes and the hearts of his audience back to the cross as well. In chapter 2 and verse 36 of Acts, here's what Peter says. Let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and In Christ, here they are looking back to the cross, just like you and I do. In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. And so then, those who had gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were joined together. Here's what happened in Acts chapter 2. People who are in the same situation as us. The gospel message was preached to them. Their hearts and their minds were turned back to the cross. And what did they do in verse 37? They believed. Men and brethren, what shall we do? We have put to death the Son of God. We have crucified Him. We have murdered Him. We are sinners. What can we do? To believers, Peter instructed them to do what? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe 
repent, be baptized, and find your sins sent away. And those who gladly received his word that day were what? Baptized. And 3,000 souls were joined together. There was no delay. They believed, they repented, and without delay they were baptized. Again, people who are in the same situation as us, people who are not looking forward to the work of the Messiah, but who are looking back to the work of the Messiah, looking back to the work of Christ, looking back to the cross and the blood that was shed, to people who are in the same situation as us, people who believed, they were told to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven of their sins. Simple reading of the text. Go forward in the book of Acts with me. Come over here to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Here is the story of Philip preaching Jesus to the Samaritans. Paul has been persecuting the church. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Those who were scattered by that persecution went everywhere preaching the word. And one of the people that were going to follow was a man by the name of Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them there in verse 5. So he began to preach Jesus to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the greatest to the least, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. They were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But verse 12, When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike, and even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized... He continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, and he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Philip comes to Samaria, and what does he preach? Simple reading of the text, right? What does he preach? He preaches Jesus to them. Verse 5, he preached Christ to them. What did that involve? I don't know absolutely everything that Philip said, but I do get a summary of it over here in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. When Philip preached Jesus, he preached about the kingdom of God, You see that in verse 12? He preached about the name or the authority of Jesus Christ. You see that in the text? And he preached about what else? Does verse 12 tell us? He preached about baptism. How do we know that? Because that's what people did. 
in response to his preaching. They were baptized. And one might argue, well, that was just some sort of cultural thing, but as we remember that these are people with a background of Judaism, there wasn't anything like water baptism as a part of Judaistic expression here. They weren't doing this because this was something that they came up with on their own. Philip preached Jesus to them, and part of his preaching Jesus involved preaching about baptism. And after hearing of God's authority through Jesus Christ, they believed in verse 12, and they were baptized. Right? Simple reading of the text. We haven't gone up here one time and mentioned the church of Christ, have we? Right? Sometimes we, we hear this idea of church of Christ theology or church of Christ doctrine. Uh, number one, I don't like using church of Christ as an adjective. I don't see it used that way in scripture. But even accommodatively speaking, we're, we're not seeing any of that. Folks, all that we've been doing this morning is just opening up our Bibles and reading and noticing what Scripture is saying to us. Here were believers who when Jesus was preached to them, after Jesus was preached to them, because of their belief they were baptized. Look one chapter later, come over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who goes on to become Paul the Apostle, accounted here. Uh, You've got another account of it in Acts 22, and a third account of it in Acts chapter 26. But the story is, uh, perhaps you know it well, he is journeying, Saul is journeying on his way uh, to come to Damascus to find Christians and to persecute them. But on his way, he, there's this bright light that shines around him, right? And he starts interacting with this voice that he hears. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Who are you, Lord? And in verse 5, he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Paul is told, Saul is told to go into Damascus where he would be told, what he must do. And we find out that there is a man named Ananias that God has selected to go to Saul and preach the gospel to him. And Ananias comes to Saul, and what does he tell Saul in Acts chapter 22? Acts 22 and verse 16, as, as Saul describes the story here. Ananias comes in verse 14 and he says to him, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He was told to be baptized in order for his sins to be washed away. Simple reading of the text, right? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Come back to Acts 10. 
Look at Acts 10 and the story here of Cornelius. This tender-hearted Gentile who's going to become the first convert to Christianity from amongst the Gentiles. Cornelius had been entreating God. He was instructed in verse 32 to send to Joppa and invite Simon, who was also called Peter, to come to you, for he is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. And in verse 33, what Cornelius tells us is this. He says, I sent to you, Peter, immediately, and you have been kind enough to come, and now then we are all here present before God to hear all that has been commanded of you by the Lord. He says, we're ready to hear it. Whatever God has told you, whatever God has commanded you to speak to us, say it, Peter. We want to hear it. In verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, I most assuredly understand now that God is not one who shows partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and does what is right is accepted by him. And the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout Judea, starting in Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Beginning here, what does is, what is Peter do? He preaches Jesus to Cornelius, doesn't he? Cornelius and his household hear Peter Preach Jesus to them after saying, we're ready to hear everything that God has commanded you. Tell us. And Peter begins to do just that. And in verse 43 down here, Peter would say this, Of Jesus, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles as well. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one, surely no one can forbid water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And then he did what in verse 48? He ordered them, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Simple reading. We're ready to hear everything that God has commanded you. And what did Peter end up commanding them in the name of the Lord Jesus? To be baptized. Acts chapter 16, the story of Lydia. Lydia hears the gospel from Paul. And what does she do immediately after that? The Lord opened her heart in verse 14 to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She hears the gospel and she responded to the gospel by being baptized. Later in this same chapter, we hear the story of the Philippian jailer. The jailer hears Paul and Silas singing and praying. He's been listening to them, and at about midnight, there's a great earthquake. The prison doors are open. The chains fall off of everybody. The jailer sees what's going on. He draws out a sword to kill himself because he's 
He hasn't done his duty. He hasn't taken care of things. All the prisoners he thinks have gotten out. When Paul cries out, do not yourself no harm, verse 28, because we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear fell down before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your household, and you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all of those who were in his house, and he took them that very night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. He put forth the question, what must I do to be saved? And in response to that question, the gospel was preached, and he and his household believed And they were immediately baptized. That's not every example that we see in the book of Acts. This isn't every passage that the Bible lays out for us about baptism. But these are several. And these are basic passages. Simple passages. A simple reading of simple passages. But what do we see? What have we seen consistently? throughout all of these passages. When we step back and and take the bird's eye view of these passages, here's what we've seen consistently. We've seen people who believe. We've seen people who repent. We've seen people who are baptized. And from that, people who find forgiveness of their sins. Which is what Jesus talked about in Mark 16. And what, which is what we see carried forward here to Acts 16 and what we see carried forward into the rest of the New Testament. What we also see here as we are looking at these examples in Acts is that baptism was being administered with a sense of urgency. There wasn't any sort of delay, was there? We don't, for example, read anything in our New Testaments. That's what we're trying to do, right? Remember how we started? Can a person pick up their Bibles, read through, and figure out God's will about baptism? If you and I pick up our New Testaments and knew nothing else and just read through them, you know what we would never read about? We'd never read about quarterly baptisms, would we? We'd never hear about quarterly baptismal ceremonies. We'd never hear about waiting for your baptism until a particular date. No, instead what we see is baptism was always with a sense of urgency. Immediately, we saw there in Acts 16. That same day, Acts chapter 2. In in fact, the, the testimony of the book of Acts is so powerful... Uh, Just a couple of years ago, one of the leaders of of the Southern Baptist Convention got up and and said that there there had been a change that had been made at the church that he was over, one that he was encouraging other Southern Baptist churches to follow, because in their studies of the book of Acts, what they came to realize is that baptism in the book of Acts was what they were calling spontaneous baptism. That's the phrase that he preferred to use. Spontaneous baptism, that is... Baptism that occurred without any sort of delay. 
saying, going on to say he did, that the way that they had been practicing it with baptisms at Easter, baptisms at Christmas Eve and things like that, really didn't reflect the pattern that they had seen in the book of Acts as they studied through Acts as a church. And so they were ready to pass on that so that they could embrace spontaneous baptism, which they said more accurately reflected what they read in the book of Acts. I appreciate that. That's what a fair and simple reading of the New Testament will open our eyes to. What we're seeing, baptism was always accomplished with a sense of urgency. And what we're seeing, what we have to determine, and you you and I have to sit down and ultimately make a decision here, what are we seeing? Are we seeing multiple plans, multiple methods of responding to God? You know, not all of these examples mentioned repentance, did they? We don't see anything in in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian jailer being told he needed to repent, do we? Uh, When we come back earlier in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch, we maybe have a reference to the Ethiopian eunuch confessing. But were the crowds in Acts chapter 2 told to confess? No. Lydia wasn't told to repent. What do we do? What do we do when we're looking at the Gospels and Acts and we see different elements of conversion left out in different stories. And here's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we seeing multiple plans of salvation laid out for different people? Or are we just seeing one plan? And different elements being emphasized in each story. Because in all of those examples that we have gone through, how, what did we always see? We always saw belief. And we always saw baptism. What do we do with that? What's the consistent thing to do? What's the simple thing to do here? simple thing to do is to just see that God's telling us this story. He's showing us this way of responding to Him, the way that He wants us to respond to Him. And in some stories He's emphasizing repentance maybe because that's what the message was about. In some stories He's emphasizing confession maybe because that's what really uh, we need to see from that story. In some He's going to emphasize baptism. In some He's going to emphasize belief. But what we're seeing is a consistent, a consistent message here. Men and women were called to believe, they were called to repent, they were called to confess, they were called to be baptized, and in doing so, they would find the forgiveness of their sins, their sins washed away. And they'd be brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to share one last passage with you as we wrap up. Come over here to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, I think this is an important passage to to see. 
because of so much of the misunderstanding that is in the religious world around us. Colossians chapter 2, come down here with me to verse 11. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. So many times when the religious world might hear somebody talk about about baptism, or really about anything that we might do in response to God's offer of grace, somebody said, well, don't you know, don't you know you can't do anything? Because it's by grace. It's by grace through faith. And if you're going to be doing something, then you're just negating faith and grace. Number one, that really makes me question what we mean by faith in that context. If you're telling me we can't do anything, but then you're telling me I need to have faith. But granted that we're just going to have this brief discussion, I'm going to go look at Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And I'm going to make this very simple point from Colossians 2, 11 and 12, that, that when I submit to baptism, I'm not saving myself. I'm not trying to save myself. And it's not the preacher who's saving me, and it's not the water who's saving me, and it's not the church who's saving me. That I am being baptized because I have faith. Because I have In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith. Through faith in the working of God. and study God's Word and to go wherever the Lord is. And we've seen this morning what God's Word would tell us. And I need to believe in Jesus. I need to turn from sin. I need to confess Him as my Savior. And I need to unite with Him and walk with that. Raise up to a new life. A new life for my sins are forgiven. And I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have never done that before, it's a wonderful opportunity to do that. Maybe as a Christian, you look at your life and you haven't been living as you should, you haven't been following Jesus like you should, but you're ready to change. We want to help you make that change. We want to encourage you. We can help you respond to God for this morning. What you've done, all the same. Therefore, Jesus, I pray always to walk with Him within the narrow road. Would you have Him bear your burden, carry all your load? Let him have his way with thee. His power.
can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee.